Please take your Bibles and turn to James chapter 5. We're going to be finishing the book up today. And we're going to be doing verses 7 through 20. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing I'm not going to preach again for a little while, and I just didn't want to have like one more sermon uh, hanging in James. So uh, this could have definitely been two sermons, but I've kind of squeezed it into one. Uh, the book of James is <clears throat> an aid to us in our suffering. James has told us that suffering is going to come, it's certain, and that God is using it to strengthen our endurance. Enduring suffering is difficult, but suffering can seem unbearable when we have to do it alone. One of the things, if you know me well, that I suffer from is claustrophobia. If you don't know what claustrophobia is, that's the fear of tight spaces. Another thing you might not know about me, some of you might not know, is that I worked in a factory for over 20 years. And when I was in, in that job, I was having some problems with my right shoulder. And this is when I found out how claustrophobic I was. Because the doctor's way of finding out what was wrong with me was to stuff me into this little coffin uh, that some of you might know as an MRI machine. Uh, now, there's a normal MRI, and the normal M MRI is kind of like a, I call it one size fits all, you know. They can put small people in there, but they, they have to take a shoehorn to put me in there. Uh, there so I was never able to get through uh, a regular MRI. Uh, I think I got out of that thing in about three minutes. The tech tried to talk, talk me into getting back in there, but there was no way I was climbing back in, into that hole. Uh, there's another MRI that they will do for claustrophobic people. It's called an open MRI. So if you don't know what an open MRI is, I like to describe it like, it's kind of like being inside of a sandwich. So you're, the lower piece of bread is here and you're laying on it on your back, looking up, and it's kind of like the top piece of bread is just hovering over you right here at your nose. So you can kind of see everything out here, but it's still, uh, I still had a hard time with those because I think part of my problem is I don't like to not be able to move. It's like I'm, the whole time I'm thinking, I can't move, I can't move. Well, I was able to get through the open MRIs, but the only reason was because uh, there was one time I had one and the, the tech was in this window and I could kind of look up and see him. He would actually talk to me through a microphone. He would stop every five minutes or so and he would say, are you okay? And, uh, and then he would do like little five-minute uh, scanning sessions and that actually took longer, but emotionally I was able to get through it easier. And there was even another time when they let Carla bring a chair in the room with me. She sat down next to me, uh, next to the MRI machine, and she would talk to me. Uh, she would tell me what they were doing. And I was able to get through those things because I had someone with me. Well, I needed the presence of others in the midst of my suffering. And the Lord knows that we all have difficulties in our suffering. And even though he's the one who ordains our suffering, and he's the one who even requires from us to faithfully endure our suffering, he does not call, he's not callous and he's not indifferent towards your suffering. Uh, 
He doesn't expect you to go through it alone with no aid. He knows we need help in our suffering. So God provides great aid to us in our suffering. And he does it through through his presence, and he does it through the presence of his people, his church. Well, if you look in your bulletins, you'll see uh, the outline there. Yes, it's another two-point outline. So I thought it was kind of fitting that I ended James with a two-point. I don't know why I ended up with so many two-point outlines in the book of James, but that's okay. Uh, The first point you can see there is just basically that we need to be patient in our suffering. And the second point is that God provides for us the presence of others in our suffering. So if you will, uh, look at your Bibles in James chapter 5. And let's read verses 7 through 20 together. Hear the word of the Lord. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, Do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again. And heaven gave rain. And the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Amen. Now James begins this section in verse 7 with the simple command, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Now the word therefore takes us back to the context of verses 1 through 6, where James warned the wicked rich that their abuse of God's people was going to bring about their destruction on what James calls the day of slaughter. Well, after speaking to uh, speaking judgment to the wicked rich, 
James is now going to turn in verse 7 to the one who is oppressed, the Christian who is suffering under this oppression. And he's going to give them a different type of warning. They must be patient and they must endure suffering, even the type of unjust suffering that we saw in verses 1 through 6. And they must not waver in their belief that at the coming of the Lord, justice will be served perfectly. And there is a manner and a mindset that James encourages these sufferers to take on while they are enduring. In verse 7, he continues and says, See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rain. The farmer can break up the ground. He can plant the crop. He can fertilize the crop. He can pull up all those weeds and plants that might uh, attack the crop. But he can't produce growth. He's completely dependent upon the rains that God provides to make his crop grow. It does him no good to pace up and down the field, thinking and worrying, putting forth mental effort to try to make the process go any faster. All he can do is wait patiently. I don't know about you, but I struggle with this kind of patience. I would not have made a very good farmer. And here's kind of a silly example of my lack of patience. Maybe some of you can understand this. You ever go to a store, grocery store, Walmart, something like that, and you're trying to find the checkout line that's the fastest. And so you get in one line, and it seems like it's going somewhere, and then they throw a trainee in there. Well, that line's jammed up, so I'm going to jump to another line. Well, you get in that line, and somebody pulls out this ancient thing out of their pocketbook or out of their, out of their, uh, their pocket, and uh, they start writing on something. It's called a check. People actually still use those. Can you believe that? I've actually seen it happen. I was kind of shocked. Uh, or somebody pulls out the big bag of coupons. Uh, this person has been preparing patiently to use these coupons. Well, it seems uh, in all my efforts that I always end up in the line that does not go the fastest. Uh, you know, I jump here, I jump there, and no matter what, one the line I'm not in is the one that's moving the fastest. Well, we can be this way with our Christian lives. We don't see any value in the waiting. We want relief from the waiting. We feel like the waiting is a waste of our time. But what we don't realize is that God is doing something while we wait. He is producing something that's valuable. He's producing growth. He's producing endurance in your heart while you are waiting. Paul Tripp, Benji quoted him this morning too. Benji's paralleled a lot of stuff that I'm doing in my sermon this morning. So, uh, Paul Tripp says, Waiting is about more than what you will receive at the end of the wait. It is also about what you will become as you wait. In the midst of your patient suffering, you might feel only the torture of the waiting and the crucible of the pain. But as you learn patience, as God teaches you patience in your suffering, you will look back and you will start seeing the valuable fruit that God was producing in you 
during that time that you thought was worthless while you were waiting. Now, as we wait, there are temptations that James wants us to be aware of. And he addresses these in verses 8 through 9. He says, you also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Here James is bringing back the chapter 4 idea of judging one another. He reminds us that the real judge is at hand, the real judge is standing at the door, so we should not be grumbling at or about one another, thinking that we will somehow ease or relieve our suffering by lashing out at one another. We do not relieve suffering by attacking one another, but one thing we could possibly do is set ourselves up for judgment and justice from God. So, as the coming of the Lord is an encouragement to us that justice will be given to our oppressors, it is also a sober warning to us to be guarding ourselves against the sin of grumbling, knowing that the judge is at the door ready to give justice to the one who grumbles. Now, if this makes you feel like James is kind of lifting the standard up a little too high, James does that everywhere in the book of James. Uh, so let's, let's be honest. It sounds easy to say, be patient, right? Be patient, that's easy. That's not easy. That's a difficult standard to hold up to. Or, don't grumble. You think it'd be easy for us to not grumble about other Christians. But our heart, our flesh, loves to hold on to that grumbling. We actually think that we're going to relieve something through that grumbling. So these things are difficult. But I do think James is trying to give us a little encouragement in verses 10 through 11. He gives us some examples. He says, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now, you might be thinking, this is what I thought too, Job and the prophets, that's not very encouraging to know that that's the example that we're supposed to follow. Well, these are high examples, and, and these men were righteous, they were honorable, and they are great examples for us to follow, but they were not perfect. I think we falsely get in our heads the idea that the saints in the scriptures were perfect. Job's suffering is, is often held up in the scriptures as an example, kind of the example, of how to patiently endure suffering. And it should be. It's a great example. But Job was not perfect. Job questioned God. Job justified himself. And at the end of the book, we see that Job actually throws his hand over his own mouth and realizes that he had no right to speak and that God was the perfect righteous one, not him. The prophets, there are lots of examples to pull from the prophets, uh, but they weren't perfect either. Elijah, we're going to talk about Elijah again later in this passage. 
But Elijah was a prophet who did many great things. Uh, he, he defeated the prophets of Baal. Uh, he had all of them cut off, basically. Uh, he did many mighty miracles. But he actually suffered from a type of depression. And he even told God that he wanted to die because the queen Jezebel was seeking after his life. Like these men, these are our examples. We need to be steadfast like them. But we need to remember that they were faithful, yet they were not perfect. And James also reminds us in verse 11 that the Lord is compassionate and he is merciful in the same way to us as he was to these great saints in the past. He gives us the same grace and the same compassion, the same mercy. Now James continues with another warning. He says in verse 12, But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. You might be wondering, what is a warning against unlawful vows doing in a section that has to do with patience? Well, there's several theories. Uh, I'm not going to get into any of those theories. Uh, some, some people even use this to try to say that the authorship, authorship of James is invalid uh, because it's such a strange thing to bring up. Well, I think here, just simply, if you think about the book of James, James is giving us a final warning about our speech. If you've been paying attention throughout the book of James, James cares about how you use your tongue. He warned us in chapter 3 how terrifying the tongue tongue can be. It's a flaming world of evil. He's already in this section warned us that our tongue should not be being used to lash out and to grumble against one another. Now he's warning us the last time that as we suffer in our speech, we could be tempted to offer up towards God evil in our speech by taking a rash or unlawful vow. Now, the Bible does not teach that all vows are evil, but in James' day, there were, the vows were being abused. And this is part of the reason I believe that that both Jesus and James use such harsh, even black and white type language about vows. When people took vows in James' time, they thought they could create a loophole. Well, I'll swear by heaven. I'll swear by earth. I'll swear by God's throne. I'll swear by Jerusalem. Basically, as long as they, they could swear on anything except for the name of God, they superstitiously thought they could get out of their dishonesty towards God. They thought it was a loophole. And it's possible that some in their suffering might be deceived by this superstitious oath-taking. But the danger is this. Making the vow in front of others to outwardly show that you're genuine while inwardly dishonoring God because in your heart you are thinking there's a loophole and a way to get out of this vow. 
And as we're going to see in the next section, we do not need rash, superstitious vows because God has given us great resources to sustain us and help us endure in our suffering. And this brings us to our second point, verses 13 through 20. Presence in suffering. James begins this section by reminding us of the presence of the Lord in all of our circumstances. In verse 13 he says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone among you cheerful? Let him sing praise. James wants us to remember that God is always present. When we are cheerful, we should respond to God's presence with songs of praise. And when we are suffering, we should respond to God's presence by turning to him for help in our prayers. God is the one who requires of us to patiently endure suffering. But God does not leave our presence while we are waiting and while we are enduring that suffering. The Puritan Samuel Rutherford said, There is no sweeter fellowship with Christ than to bring our wounds and our sores to him. How many of you can remember a time of pain or emotional turmoil when you were a child? The first place you probably wanted to run in that situation was to the arms of your mother or to your father. There's a strange type of healing that occurs when we place our heaving sobs into the loving arms of a parent. And God, your heavenly father, eagerly welcomes the sobs of his suffering children into his healing arms. There is sweet fellowship, there's spiritual nourishment in prayer for the one who suffers. And in addition to providing his presence through prayer, God also provides his presence, I like to say presence with flesh on, through the church. James says in verses 14 through 16, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The God who said that it was not good for man to be alone in a perfect environment will surely not leave his child alone in a world of suffering. Passages like this should help us see the flaws in modern American versions of spirituality. A spirituality that has created the idea of the autonomous individual, what I like to call the Lone Ranger Christian. God intends for his people to be active and involved in a body of believers, submitting to its authority, contributing gifts, and also receiving the benefits from others who share in the spirit of Jesus Christ. And we see this here. James presents a suffering person who is sick, The sickness is related to some type of trial or suffering. This person is encouraged not to deal with it alone, but to call for their elders, to pray for them, to anoint them with oil. Why does James say the elders must intervene in this type of suffering? Well, I believe it is because the suffering needs to have the authorities in the church 
to examine the situation, examine the heart of the person, and discern whether this sickness is the result of sin or not the result of sin. Notice in verse 15, James says, if the sickness is the result of sin. He does not say it is always the result of sin. We should never come to the conclusion that all sickness is the result of personal sin. And I think we learn this best from John chapter 9. The disciples asked Jesus about a blind man. And they're wondering, is this man blind because he sinned or because his parents sinned? And Jesus says, neither. It's for the glory of God. But on the other hand, so all, all sickness is not the result of, of personal sin. But on the other hand, Paul says that some sickness is the result of personal sin. In 1 Corinthians 11, we hear this every time we partake of the Lord's Supper. Paul says that there are those who come to the table unworthily. They partake flippantly. They don't care about their sin. And some of those people have even have become sick, and some of them have even died. So personal sin can uh, influence sickness. Now, after saying all this, we should not see this calling for the elders as a time of judgment or condemnation. That is not the point here. If the person has sinned, the purpose of this interaction is not condemnation. The purpose is restoration. You could almost see this like the flip side of church discipline. Just as the, the church has the authority to excommunicate someone who is in rebellion, they also have the authority to restore someone who is repenting. Now, what is this anointing with oil business? I'm going to clear everything up, and nobody's going to have any questions about this ever again. <laughs> Sorry. <clears throat> uh, we cannot be 100% sure what this anointing with oil means. The apostles used anointing with oil to heal people in Mark chapter 6, but we don't really have an explanation for it. Uh, the priests and kings of the Old Testament uh, were anointed with oil to prepare them for service uh, in the presence of the Lord. If you can remember uh, uh, Psalm 133, talks about the oil running down Aaron's beard. Uh, that's part of the process or the ceremony of anointing leaders with oil. And I think this one kind of lines up with the idea of what's going on in James. Not that these people are being anointed to be leaders, but they are in a way being anointed to encourage them that they are fit. And God sees, still sees them as, as worthy instruments for service in his kingdom. So... There could be a connection to anointing priests and kings. Uh, it could have something to do with the Holy Spirit. It could just be a general symbol for, for healing. Uh, whatever the meaning, this practice involves the authority of the church, and the purpose of it is to restore and encourage the suffering Christian. I like how Daniel Doriani sums up this practice. He says, anointing is neither magical nor sacramental, but it is quasi-sacramental. I don't know that I love that term, but I, I like what he's saying here. Uh, he says, like other solemn ceremonies, such as weddings and ordinations, the ceremony makes us pause so that we take the action seriously. 
the ceremony can arouse faith. So although there, there is some ambiguity for us as we try to understand this anointing with oil, we can understand the main point and the main takeaway is that the purpose of this ceremony is to encourage in a special way the faith of the suffering Christian. It is also helpful for us to understand that James is not here describing someone who has the miraculous power to heal. He makes clear that this healing and the forgiving of their sins all come from God through the means of prayer and faith. He says in verse 15 that the prayer of faith is what saves the sick person, not the power of someone who has the miraculous power to heal. And personally, I think even the comparison with Elijah makes this point. Beginning at the end of verse 16, he says, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. James says Elijah was a man like us. Now, you might think that's kind of strange to think that James would say that a man who ran faster than a chariot and a man who raised a child from the dead is a man like us. But the similarity that James wants to focus on here is prayer, the ability to pray. The ceremony of going to the elders and being anointed with oil, it's not an example of miraculous healing. It's an example of something that we have in common with the saints of every dispensation, the miraculous power of prayer. Elijah did many miracles, and there were some who could do miracles in James' time. But here the focus is on prayer. And notice how the prayer that James cites from the life of Elijah is focused on people who are, who are in a kind of a similar situation to one of the types of people who is suffering and comes to the elders. Elijah prays for a drought. Why does he pray for the drought? Well, the reason he prays for the drought is because God's people are adulterous. Or James might like to say those people were double-minded. 1 Kings 18.21 tells us, Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. The Israelites of Elijah's day were double-minded. They wanted to have the Lord, and they wanted to have Baal. So Elijah prayed for the rain to stop, bringing temporal judgment upon them. He was hoping that they would repent and that they would spare themselves from the greater judgment. One of the types of people who comes for prayer and anointing with oil from the elders is one of these double-minded type people. They've suffered. They've suffered under the hands of a gracious God. They've suffered discipline. This discipline could even be the result of the prayers of the saints. Saints who cared more about this person's soul than they cared about this person's comfort in this life. And this is part of our praying for one another. If your brother is in sin, if he is in rebellion, if he is wavering between the Lord and some idol, 
You don't pray that he will be comfortable and satisfied in that situation. You pray for the rain to stop. You pray that temporal withdrawal of blessing will bring about a heart change that will produce eternal blessing. And just like the repenting brother or sister who seeks the elders is prayed for and healed and restored, so Elijah also prayed and restored the rain after Israel had repented. So, if you are suffering with sickness or spiritual weariness and you know it is the result of your personal sin, or if you don't know, or you you know that it's not the result of your personal sin, or if you don't know either way that it's the result of personal sin, please do not hesitate to call for your elders. This is why God has placed us here. This is our duty, and this is our privilege to serve God's people in this way. Now, bring us back to James' overall point. James' point in all of this is that although there is much suffering and there's much disappointment in this world, there's also much aid and love and compassion given to the one who suffers through the presence of their God and through the presence of their people, God's people. Now James, he's talked to the sufferer mostly, but now he's going to turn at the end of the book here and he's going to talk to, to all of us who are called to be aids to the one who is suffering. So in verses 19 through 20, he says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. When I was about five, I can't remember all the details, I think I was in Indiana for some reason. And I was wandering around on a dock, and I wandered off the edge and just fell into the water that was over my head. I can kind of remember sinking. I can kind of remember fighting. Uh, It's kind of a vague memory. I thrashed around a little bit. I panicked a little bit. But the panic didn't set in very long because immediately someone was lifting me up out of the water and carrying me to the shore. There just happened to be a man. He was wearing waders. He was down in the water. Thankfully, he, <clears throat> thankfully he was down in the water. I didn't even know that that man was there, and he's the one who picked me up out of the water. If it were not for that man, I wouldn't be alive and be here today preaching this sermon, and I don't even know who he is. When I was bouncing around on the dock, I felt no danger. I felt perfectly safe. I wasn't aware of the edge. I wasn't aware of the danger beyond the edge. But I was aware immediately as soon as I fell into the danger. It's the same with the double-minded. They do not realize and they do not care that they are wandering away from life about to plunge into death. They need someone who was like this fisherman. I'm thankful that the fisherman didn't say, that drowning child is none of my business. That stupid child 
made his choices, and now he's just got to deal with it. I'm thankful that he intervened. And God has called all of us to this type of intervention. The elders are not the only ones who were called to pursue those who are wandering away from truth. It is the duty of everyone who follows Christ. You are a vital instrument that God chooses to use to rescue someone from the folly of their own ways, to save their soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. And this is difficult for us to do if we never get personal with anyone in the church. We have to have more than a casual relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ if we are going to be involved enough to go after them when we see them wandering away from the truth that is in Jesus Christ. Now, let us apply some practical uh, things to this, to this idea. First, we can't be super personal with everyone. Uh, God's not calling you to that. Uh, Mike Thompson can't be buddies with every member of this church and know them so personally that he's there to call, uh, call them out when they're wandering away. And he's not called any one individual to that. To quote Robin, told Robin I was going to do this, uh, Robin says this quote is originally from Lynn, so this is obviously something that Lynn told Robin all the time, and Robin likes to share this with me, and I'm sure she shares it with Mike a lot too. Uh, many things can be your concern. So it's okay for you to be concerned with a lot of things that are going on. But not everything is your responsibility. Everyone is not your responsibility. So it's healthy to be realistic about your responsibilities. But it's also healthy for us to just take a moment and search our hearts in this matter. So I'm going to ask us a few uncomfortable heart questions. Am I close enough to anyone in the church that I would feel comfortable gently pointing out obvious areas of sin in their life? Now, I'll say the word obvious because I'm not saying be the sin police going around poking at every little speck. But obvious sins. Am I close enough to anyone in the church that they would feel comfortable gently pointing out obvious areas of sin in my life? Am I approachable enough that someone would come to me if they were struggling with sin and ask for my prayers or advice? Is there anyone that I know in the church that I would be comfortable enough to approach for help when I'm struggling with a sin? And need advice. Now I know it's harder for, for some to be open than others. I know that. Uh, and it's, it's inappropriate to bear your soul to everyone. John Avery is the one who gets my soul all the time. John is my elder and if he's hiding somewhere at the church working outside, I always go find him and I bear my soul to him. Uh, it's an easy person to do that with. But we don't need to do that with everybody. And that's okay. But in this letter, James has been telling us that we all have the potential to wander. 
So you need to recognize that others are vital to keep you from wandering. Don't think you can't wander. And you are vital to keep others from wandering. And this is God's design. This is the way that God wants to do it. He wants to use you. So you need to strive for a deeper relationship with someone in the church. And it does us no good to blame others for our lack of relationships. We are all sinners. It is difficult for all of our sins to come together and develop deep, trusting relationships. It just is. But the reality of wandering is too serious for us to not learn how to forbear with the different kind of sins that other people have and the different kind of social quirks that others have. We must pray and look to Christ to help us overcome these things in order to be instruments used to bring back the one who wanders. Now, short conclusion. James has said some very difficult things throughout this entire letter. The Christian life is not easy. You cannot read the book of James and conclude that the Christian life is easy. We must defend against our sinful desires, the allure of the world, and the seduction of Satan. But I'm thankful that James ends this letter by reminding us that this not easy life The waiting, the enduring, the suffering is not a solo life. It's not a solo journey. God has given you so many resources. You have the authority of the church. You have the love and prayers of your brothers and sisters. And most of all, your Savior has given you the gift of his Holy Spirit. The comforter the one who completes Jesus' promise when he spoke to his disciples and he spoke to you when he said, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen.